So tonight we're going to continue in our study through the book of Deuteronomy on Tuesday nights, verse by verse. And as we come to the text tonight, it's chapter 15. So we'll be in chapter 15, this amazing book quoted more than 80 times in the New Testament, quoted many times by Jesus himself. And as we continue to press on, we're in the heart of the message where Moses is encouraging the next generation that's about to enter to the promised land to obey the Lord and to just do what's right, to know what's right, not make it complicated, keep it simple. God's word is fairly simple and just to obey his word and do what's right. And he's exhorting them and encouraging them and reminding them that even as the previous generation failed in their opportunities, they have new opportunities for them as they go into the promised land. And this is that final message of Moses before he steps into eternity. And he's just really preparing a generation that he will not get to see grow up, but he's preparing them to enter in and do the right things. And he's, he's just letting go and giving it over to the Lord and just speaking the truth to them. And as we come to chapter 15, last week we left off with the tithing principles uh, that the Jews had under the Mosaic Covenant, that, that covenant that God had with them as a nation. And a lot of what we see tonight relates to Israel in that covenant with God as a na- nation, as an ethnic people group and a covenant. And again, as we look at these things in Deuteronomy, we keep saying, all right, how does this apply to the church? Because the church is an individual relationship through faith in Jesus Christ. This is a shadow of things to come, but Christ is the fullness. But the word is inspired and profitable for all of us, every single word in God's word, including all the Old Testament. So we want to rightfully divide it and handle it correctly and think about and apply these passages tonight for us, for those of us who have given our life to Jesus Christ and call ourselves disciples of the Lord in 2021 as we go forward in our journey, whether we're younger or older here tonight, whether we have many years in front of us or just a few days, the Lord knows. And so we pick it up in chapter 15. After he said, you should just be super generous with the Levites, with the widow, with the stranger, with the fatherless, because you know what? You're going to be blessed, and God's going to bless you abundantly when you bless others. And that's the context. So now, verse 1 of chapter 15. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother, because it is called the Lord's release. Of a foreigner, you may require it, but you shall give up your claim of what is owed by your brother, except when they may be no more poor among you. For the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance, only if you carefully obey all these commandments which I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. Again, this is very contextual for the nation of Israel, right? In other parts of the scripture, he said that you'll be the head and not the tails. That you'll be the head, that you'll lead, not follow. Being set aside in a covenant and having that relationship with God, they were a a special people, a treasure, as we're told, a holy nation. And with that came the responsibility. And they were to be a light to the world. Every other nation on planet Earth from the time this covenant began around 1500 BC until the time that Jesus Christ came 1500 years later was to be able to look at Israel and say, what an amazing people. Like these people are so blessed. Like they serve the true God, the one true God, not many gods like their neighbors. So even if someone came from China all the way to Israel during that time, they should come and marvel at what they see. If someone came from the tip of South Africa, all the African continent, to Israel and saw what Israel was during that 1,500 years, they they would have marveled. If some Indian groups from America could have sailed across or however gotten there, 
they would be to marvel. So the Irish to the far north, that, that all the nations, wherever humanity was, they could have come to Israel and been inspired by these people who have a relationship with God, a national people. And we have a, an inkling of what this could have been like with the Queen of Sheba, because the Queen of Sheba was a very powerful woman. And she came during Solomon's reign, the zenith of the great reigns of the kings, and she said, oh, it, they've not told me half the truth, and I couldn't even believe what they told me about you, and how blessed are your servants and those who serve you, and the God you serve, and all that he's done for you. That was their witness to be, that they're a blessed people, that their house was in order. Bobby was even praying about God having everything under control in order. And throughout the Bible, God is putting things in order. When Paul wrote to Titus, he said, set in order the things that are lacking. And this nation was to be a nation of order, that they were to have that relationship with God evident in their personal lives, and they'd bring a healthy personal faith to the collective gatherings of Israel. We'll see the feast in a moment. And that they would bring health to their gatherings. So as they gathered as a nation three times a year for their feast, they would have a healthy home life. They'd have a healthy marriage and a healthy home, or a healthy single life. And they would bring spiritual health to the collective gathering of the people as a nation. So when they had the feast, they could rejoice and they would be a light and an encouragement to one another. And so they would have a healthy spiritual walk and because they'd have a healthy spiritual walk, they'd have a healthy financial walk. They would be a strong economy. They'd be a very strong economy because they would be the head, not the tail. They would lend and not borrow because God is their provider and they're in a covenant with him and they'd be blessed by God and they'd be a place they would be in a place to be benevolent to surrounding nations to bless others. That's the way God designed it. And that's something we can draw on with the church because though the church is not a nation, we are blessed by God and it's to call the church to be a blessing to others. And we've been talking about this with much of the law that the history of the church is public education, public health care, care for the orphans, care for those who minister to others. The legacy of the church for 2,000 years is beautiful. It's the church that brings life and serves others. It's Darwinistic Marxist theologies that take life and destroy others and destroy nations to just contrast those things or false religions that are a foundation for authoritarian and totalitarian people to keep them in suppression, particularly women, so oppressive religions. But Christ liberates and Christ brings freedom for the spirit of the Lord is liberty, and it's liberty in the Lord. And there can't be liberty when there's financial bondage. And it's inconsistent to say we have spiritual liberty and to live in financial bondage. It's a paradoxical situation. So we're told in the scriptures that if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. So God, through the apostle Paul, holds us all accountable that if we can be productive, we are productive. If we can't be productive, and were dependent upon needs, then obviously in the early church we saw in the book of Acts that they took care of the widows, the widows' distribution, and they did these sorts of things early on in the church to bless others, and then the rest is church history to this day all over the planet. So not having that governmental covenant, not having this economic covenant in that same sense, like a central church, like a bureaucratic agency, like a monarchy. For example, again, if you go back to the czars of Russia, 300 years of the Romanovs, whether it was Catherine the Great or Peter the Great or Nicholas or Alexander the Second, whatever, they would have a central economy. And with Russia, it was the czar, God, the czar, and the people. And so there was a central source where all the money came in. 
by which the czars ruled and reigned, very similar to England with the kings and even the Kaiser, but they had parliaments, but Russia was a total monarchy. But Israel was supposed to be a monarchy under God. So as they arose as an economic entity, as a people group, they are told right here, one of the things that can be healthy for you is not to hold the debt against someone, uh, your brethren, within the covenant for more than seven years, and you'll release them. It's the Lord's release. So you're not going to hold this over a brother. Like someone came down on their bad luck, something happened, the bills got ahead of them or whatever. If you lend it to them, and you should be able to lend to them, to bless them, and if they can pay it back, they could pay it back. The, again, the context of Israel. And if they couldn't, you still release them. There just comes a point where you know what, you got to let it go. And really, if you ever lend money, you should just consider that you let it go right there. That way you don't get bitter. It's, it's a gift. And if it comes back, great. Because Solomon said, cast your bread upon many's waters. You don't know if it's going to come back from here or from there. Really, the whole idea of being spiritually blessed by God is to be able to bless others for God. But if we're lazy, for the sloth will not even bring the food from the bowl to his mouth, for it's a burden to him, says in Proverbs. If we're not willing to eat, if we're not willing to work, we don't eat. That's what we're told for the New Testament. It's the opposite. Like the Bible says, those who steal, steal no more and work that they have something to give. That's what the Bible says in the New Testament. So when you look at this principle, we're told here that essentially God wants us to be economically sound. And this, of course, is so much what you hear. If you, we had the Dave Ramsey uh, Financial Peace Institute here, whatever he calls this thing that he does, years ago. And it, it was very effective and fruitful. We only did it one time. But you have people like Dave Ramsey and people like that that understand biblical principles. I don't know what they're with the Lord, but they understand biblical principles that it's never God's intention that a believer in Christ is per perpetually in debt. That actually is a bad witness because in most cases, not all, because again, like orphans in Uganda, they, they, have, they do not have the opportunity that we have. So that's a different situation. But certainly here in the West, that, that's an inconsistent thing. The Christ is a giver. And if we're looking to the Lord provide for us, he's going to work in and through us that we can be givers as well. So the idea that I'm a Christian and Christ is a giver, he makes me a giver, but I'm a taker is so inconsistent with the biblical model for the nation of Israel and for the church of Jesus Christ. Look at the widow. What did the widow do? She put in the last of her wealth in the offering because givers give and keep on giving because they're always willing to keep on forgiving. But takers take, it's never enough, even when they're taking almost all your stuff. So the Pharisees put all their wealth in there, but they're taking it from their parents. They're twisting God's word to their own destruction. Contrary to the scriptures, Jesus rebukes them for it in the gospels. And then they put out money and like, look at us. We're, we're just such benevolent people. And the widow puts in economic value, like nothing compared to that. But she put in her all. They just put in what they're stealing from other people. So it's really important, this principle for the church that we understand that God loves a cheerful giver and God's going to meet all of our needs according to his riches and glory. This, is, this has been the theme that we, I mean, this is what we're going verse by verse. Obviously the topic's been the topic for chapters in this book, but we want to be blessed by being obedient and being obedient will be blessed. And we want to be wise with our resources. And we want to be generous with our resources, our time, our energy, and our resources. And you can't bless others when you can't manage your own finances. Now, this church, by and large, is very sound, the individuals that make up this church. Again, because we're a very generous church. And in 18 years, you've never had me appeal for money, ever, once, ever. And I never will. I take it to the Lord if we have a need. 
but it's it's important that this this is the disposition that we release things. He said, you shall release things. And this was a principle for them. It was dangerous if they, think if you didn't release what was there and you just held on to it like you're the exception, you found a loophole for yourself and you talked yourself into it, how you would then begin to despise your brother. And then the next Sabbath years would come up 14 years later and you'd be like, man, he never paid me back. They never paid me back. And that root of bitterness would come in. It's all the Lord's. It comes from the Lord's, goes out from the Lord. And you want to be in a place where you can bless. How many times you hear people say, oh, I would do something, but I, I'm just barely getting by. And what we've, we're seeing is a generation rising up that's totally dependent upon, by and large, upon government. And you can't just keep printing money. We all know that, right? You can't just keep printing money. At some point, history shows every country that just keeps printing money collapses with no exception. But whatever collapses around us, we don't have to collapse because the Lord's a provider and he's providing for us. He takes care of our needs according to his riches and glory, Ephesians 4, and we're generous people. And I just mean in general. Because a lender can do much for others, but a borrower is always at the mercy of others. And the, the lender, the borrower is a slave to the lender. Are we slaves of Jesus or are we slaves to a bank? Are we slaves to a credit card? Living beyond our means and living outside of what God has provided for us. What I've always said about credit card debt and why I don't like it, it's a presumption on the future we're not given. Because credit card debt's in front of you and you're presuming God's going to give you those days to pay that off. You're presuming you're even going to pay it off, but you're presuming God's going to give you those days to pay it off. And tomorrow's guaranteed to no one. That's what's so dangerous about living on credit. So we live, need to live in the moment, trust God in the moment, and be wise, have faith, and be frugal at the same time. And it requires wisdom. But you can never go wrong when you're a generous disposition toward people because your heart will always be tender, and you'll care, and you'll have empathy. You just can't drive by people who are down and out on their luck for whatever reason, self-inflicted or what someone did to them, and you just cannot harden your heart toward them. That is the antithesis of Jesus Christ. We just can't be that person. Of all the people with hard hearts towards society who create different values for different human beings, we have to have the highest value for every soul on the planet, in the womb, to the tomb. That's who we are. And we have to be generous to represent Christ. We need to be generous to represent Christ in that situation. I personally believe that the United States of America and the Church of America has great accountability on the day of Christ Jesus for all the wealth that we've received because of what others lay down before us and what we do with it. And I, for one, want to give as much away as I can before that trumpet sounds for my life and as a legacy of this ministry. Because I want to be the giver, not the taker. And so do you. And this is our legacy, but again, it's, it's the text. And I think it's important that we address this because it says right here, they were meant to be the lender, not the borrower. And it concerns me that our country is becoming more and more the borrower, not the lender. But you turn your back on the Lord, that's what you get. You legislate them out of your laws. You remove them from your education. You remove the voice from society and the marketplace of thought. You try and cancel Jesus Christ. Guess what? You're the borrower, not the lender. Verse 7. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates... In your land, which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart, nor shut your hand from the poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide him and willingly lend him sufficiently for his need, whatever he needs. 
Beware, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and all which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor, and your needy in your land. Again, this is just continuation of this thought, but this is specifically, look at the phrase here. The previous verses, 1 through 6, said, you shall lend to many nations, but shall not borrow. Uh, and you shall reign over the nations, but they shall not reign over you. But here he says, you shall open wide your hand to him, willingly lend him sufficiently for his need, whatever he needs. And then he says again, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, your poor and your needy in your land. By the way, in recent years, that's, we've begun to do a lot more locally in our, our giving with the community, for example, Orange County Rescue Mission, stuff like that. Why not? We should. You know, like, we just want to be a part of solutions. We're going to always have the poor with us. And if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. So we sow bountifully because we want to reap bountifully. Who knows? I mean, I never thought that much about it till we had Eric here who was living at the rescue mission for months with his kids and coming to church on Saturday nights. He's not there anymore. He still comes to the church. But maybe realize, like, well, like, sometimes you do have tough breaks and situations you end up like that. And we should have a heart for that. We're very involved with foster care, pro-life, and homeless uh, ministries in our region, as we should be, because it says, in your land. And that's why I was, you know, I told the story Saturday about the breakfast burrito for the homeless lady. And even though she like, she's like, oh, it looks like it's been out for a while. Like, man, that's, I've been waiting three days for this breakfast burrito. But I was still like, you know, that's her choice. I gave it to her. So if she values it or doesn't value it, that's her choice. It was valuable to me, and I gave her something valuable to me. And what she chose to do with it is her choice. See, we do as under the Lord. So if someone appreciates what you do for them, great. If they don't, that's okay too. Like if you buy someone a cup of coffee, like where's the cream and sugar? I want a latte. That's, that's between them and the Lord. Your kindness still counts, and what you chose to do matters. Because whatever we do, we do it heartily as unto the Lord, of course. So we want to be generous in our disposition. Verse 12, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you, this would be like employees. Six years, they serve you six years. And then the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine press, from what the Lord God has blessed you with. You shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. And if it happens that you say, I will not go away from you, that he says, I will not go away from you, because he loves you in your house, <laughs> you're a great person to work for, since he prospers with you, then you shall take the all, thrust it through his ear on the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Also to your female servant, you shall do likewise. It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free from you, for he has been worth the double hired servant in serving you six years. Then the Lord God will bless you in all that you shall do. So this is really, if you run a business, these are good principles if you run a business. Like a lot of people say, oh, I'm a Christian business owner. Well, the best witness of a Christian business owner is to take care of his people or her people. If you're a manager for a company that's not Christian, but they know you're a Christian, the best thing you can do is shine and serve, be consistent, be a woman of integrity, be a man of integrity, and, and value your people. We value our people. 
at worship generation. We value our worship leaders. We value service. People's time and energy is very valuable. And it's important that we value people. Anytime anyone's working underneath you, we're told in the New Testament that masters are to take care of their servants to know that we have a master, the Lord Jesus Christ. So to whom much is given, much is required. I love these principles. So basically, the ultimate thing is if someone worked for you for six, seven years and they fulfilled a contract, like to say, or something like that, well, it's, it's an example in the world, but Tom Brady always took less money to stay with the Patriots for all those years. So the money could go to other players, but he took less money than he was worth. LeBron James actually did the same thing as well. That means they liked where they're at and who they're working with. So even the world recognizes that you, you like the environment you work. So working for you and working underneath you should be a blessing. It should reflect the Lord in how you interact with people, how you treat people, how you take care of people, how you view them. Because some people only see people as consumers. And it drives me nuts, particularly when people are Christians, see people as consumers. You see people as people made in the image of God and treat them with that respect. And if you can provide a goods for them that there's a proper pay of services rendered, then that's exactly how we should be doing business in Jesus' name. We don't want to fleece the flock. We don't want to fleece humanity. Provide a good service, a quality product at the right fair price, and God will honor that. Because what do we keep saying in all these things? God will bless you. It will be well with you, and God will bless you. So treating people that way is good. So in the positions of leadership, you don't want to take advantage of your people. You want them to want to stay after seven years to the point you could drive, take the, you know, like the ice pick and just put it right through the air, put an ear in there and say, I want to work. I'm a, I'm a company person. You are my 401k. You, my boss, you are who I trust and you're witness for the Lord. I want to work for you and your family the rest of my life. I want to be a servant in Abraham's tent, essentially. I want to work with Sarah. I want to be in this house serving with Rachel or Rebecca or, or whatever. That's a great witness and a great testimony to our faith and how we live our life. And he said, if they choose to leave, you know, sometimes you have people you really love and they work with you and they choose to leave. Sometimes they go right down the road. Funny thing with surfing, usually really good surfboard shapers have a mentor and they mentor another really good surfboard shaper. And usually those surfboard shapers, they mentor, go right down the street and become the competition. That's what happens with, with surf, surfing because it's a craft and you, you take that risk. And unfortunately, in the church, a lot of times people raise up someone in their church and then they go down the road and start another church and fleece the flock that way too. That happens too. But that's all great because they're never our sheep, right? I'm speaking as a pastor. They're God's people. So we don't ever try and own them and they want to come and go. These are the fields you can graze in. This is a safe sheepfold. That's how we look at it. And they're all God's people. But if someone wants to leave, sometimes you're like, oh, wow. And no matter what you want to pay them, even you want to give them, hey, do I need to pay you more? Do you need greater benefits? They just might, might just want to go on, just do something different. They don't want to keep working at that company. You are a great boss. They just want, it's just time for a new season in their life. You can't take it personal. And you want to send them out with a blessing. In 1999, after I'd worked for Surfride Board Shops in Oceanside for three years coming back from Vermont, Bill Bernard, the owner, always believed in me. And he said, we should hire Joey Brand. He's a pastor. He loves the Lord. We're going to be blessed for hiring him. We're going to pay him double what we normally pay someone for doing retail. And as it went on, I was basically a pastor in the store. All day long, people would come. I'd pray with people. I didn't even sell wetsuits or trunks. It was just ministry. And Bill Bernard loved it. And then there came a time when that was, season was done. And um, he told me on the phone, we're, we're, we're going to let you go. 
um, I'm going to give you six months severance, full pay, and you're going to be pastoring a church in the future. And I need to let you go and get ready for that. And within a year, I was on staff with Pastor Chuck at Big Calvary. And in a sense, WG was always a flock within the flock at Calvary Costa Mesa. But I never forgot the kindness that Bill Bernard showed me that. Like, that was, that was really benevolent, and I really took note of that. And we've always tried to be that way. We always try, you know, we've got a lot of people go out. Brian, Raul, Jeremy, these different people. We always, Jason Wright, we always try and take really good people, our, care of our people, and send them out with a lot of blessings. And even when I left Calvary Vista in the 80s, Brian Broderson sent me out with a good blessing to get traction in a new beginning on the East Coast, starting a church from nothing, essentially. And that's how we want to be. We want to take care of our people. And you see that. So if people stay, awesome. If people want to go, send them out with a blessing. Bless them when they leave, how you want to be blessed when you're leaving, right? That's how you have to look at things. Love your neighbor as yourself. Like I said, when the Lord was putting on our heart to send this money to Uganda recently, it wasn't going to be easy, and it was an arduous process. And I was like, oh, man, this is just this is too hard. And the Lord's like, if you were the one receiving the money, it wouldn't be too hard. You'd find a way if it was for you, right? And he literally spoke that to my heart. I'm like, yeah, I guess I would. I would find a way. <laughs> you know, a wise man scales a city wall. It just depends on how motivated you are. And if you're motivated to receive the money, you'll find a way. Are you as motivated to give the money as you are to receive it? So... Get it done for them like you'd want it done for you. All right. Take care of people. Verse 19. All the firstborn males that come from your herd and your flock, shall sanct- you shall sanctify to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. See, that all belongs to the Lord. The firstborn is the Lord's. You, it's a tithe. You and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God year by year in the place which the Lord chooses. But if there's a defect in it, it is lame or blind, has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Because the sacrifice represents Jesus, and Jesus is without the lamb without blemish. The lamb, the lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. He's like a spotless lamb, the New Testament tells us. So the no defect, the, there can be no defective sacrifices because they truly do represent Jesus Christ, and God made him who knew no sin without defect to be sin for us when he died on the cross in our place. So all these sacrifices for 1,500 years, all these offerings, they had to be defect-free because that'd be like, it would represent Jesus being a lame offering. It represent a sinner dying for sinners, but Jesus is sinless. Now, obviously, a sinless lamb is not the same as the sinless land of God, but that principle and that picture is there. So no defect. You shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Verse 22, you may eat it within your gates. You can still eat the defective offering, but you can't make it a sacrifice. The unclean, your friends, your neighbors, whatever, and the clean person, they, they can eat it as if it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it on the ground like water. Be generous, but don't, don't give the Lord lame offerings. Give him, give him, give him the best. Chapter 16, observe the month of Abid and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abid, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste that you may remember that day. Remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. 
And no leaven shall be seen among you in your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrificed the first day at twilight remain overnight until the morning. The Passover lamb has got to be eaten that night. Verse 5. You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates which the Lord your God gives you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time that you came out of Egypt, and you shall roast it and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses. In the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work in it. The Passover was that first of the three main feasts that lined up for the nation of Israel by which they measured a calendar year in the first month of their calendar, the springtime. And it's a, set, it's a feast by which all the men were required to go to Jerusalem once a year for this feast with their families, ideally. And the purpose was that you will remember that day which you came out of the land of Egypt. The blood of the Passover lamb was a reminder that they were saved by blood, saved by faith, saved by mercy and grace, through faith in that sacrifice, that God made the way, God delivered them. They didn't deliver themselves, but saved by grace. It really is a type of Ephesians chapter 2, where it says, by grace you have been saved, that through faith, not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. They truly were saved. As also says in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. That blood of that lamb put over the doorpost and on the sides of the door, representing the cross, is a reminder every year to them to stop and remember how they were saved by faith, grace, mercy, and by the blood, and that God did it. And we need to be reminded of our saving grace. We can never be callous or indifferent to the gospel that Jesus truly did live a sinless life, that he fulfilled this law perfectly, that he was condemned to death unjustly, and he died in our place, that the wrath of God was poured out on him And we need to remember that. And for the Jews, they're reminded with a national holiday once a year that required them to leave what they would normally do, go to Jerusalem, and think about it. The key word there is remember. Remember the day you came out of Egypt. So when we think about being saved by faith, sometimes we might have a spiritual birthday. You might have a day where you gave your life to Christ. A date. My wife had a date. I've mentioned it recently, December 7th, 1987. For me, it was more like the spring of 1987. I can't really quite put a date on it. I just know that in March I was like this, and by May I was like that, and completely different. Reading through the Gospel of John, listening to K-Wave and Pastor Chuck Tapes. I can't, I can't give you a date. I just know it started this way, and by the time the hillsides were brown, I was that way, and there was no looking back. So remember that. It's good to remember. For some reason the other night, I was just, I fell asleep and woke up, which is the worst thing ever, let the reader understand. You know, they fall asleep for 10 minutes. Like, oh, boy, here we go. It's going to be until like 2 or 3 in the morning. Then I'm all messed up tomorrow. But I fell asleep and woke up right away. And then I was laying there. And I started just thinking about my life with the Lord, Virginia, Vermont, all the people that we still know and keep in touch with, that we love and care about. I was praying for them. Seeing about all the people that have died that I know and love from the same timelines, surf industry people, people I went to high school with. At 60, you can think of a lot of people that you know that have died. Because if you hit 60, you're already ahead of the curve for a lot of people. And I was remembering. It just made me grateful to be saved. It made me happy to be a pastor for 33 years. 
that it's been a good choice. Actually, I thought back to 1999 when Bill Bernard let me go that Billabong offered me this three-year contract to do this whole thing, and I was going to do it with my wife as my witness, and the Lord told me, don't do it. And I told Graham Stapleberg at the time, who was offering this thing, that I wasn't going to do it. And I didn't know what door was, God was going to open, but he opened up the door to come on staff. Because after I told Billabong no, Brian Broderson called me from England and said, I think you're supposed to come on staff. I'm coming back to serve under Pastor Chuck, and I'd like you to join the staff. But I had to tell Billabong no to three years before Brian called me and offered me to come. And the rest is history, because within six months, I had Jeremy Camp in the sanctuary. <laughs> what would I miss? What if I said yes to Billabong, and I would have missed... Bobby in the sanctuary at 19, Jeremy Camp at, at 20, Phil Wickham at 16. We would have missed all that. So I was remembering. It's good to remember because we're busy, busy, busy. So if you just need to just remember, like you can't fall asleep or something, just remember like God's faithfulness. You start remembering, oh, yeah. The guy that fixed my flat tire in the point rain at Wyoming at Bay, he's coming from a Bible study, and I felt so stupid, and I was like, stupid Christians, and they showed me the one way and drove away, and I was like, I remember that. I need to remember that, how I mocked a Christian changing my tire in a driving rainstorm at Waimea Bay. And he just looked at me and went, I've seen that guy's face for 35 years. You just never know. But remember, Passover is to remember that we're saved by grace. It's good. Then we read on verse 9, and you shall count seven weeks for yourselves from Passover, Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger, the followers, the widow who are among you. See, this is what we studied on Saturday night in detail from the previous chapter. And you will do this at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Now notice this one. So with the Feast of Pentecost, and of course the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost. Jesus was crucified on the Passover, and the day of Pentecost came on the Feast of Weeks. But with Passover, he says, you'll remember. But here he says, you're going to rejoice. So here we get this rejoicing again. We've been seeing this for chapters. You shall, verse 11, rejoice before the Lord your God. But then he says in verse 12, and you will remember you were a slave. So the first feast is just remember. Look back and remember. But 50 days later, the second feast. So you go home for seven weeks and then you come back. Here we go. You're going back. So you go back and now now this is the twofer. Because the first one is just remember. This is a two for one. This is remember and rejoice. Remember that you're saved by grace but rejoice because God's blessing you here and now because you're walking and living in grace because he's blessed you. And this is your first fruits. This is what he's done for you. So you're remembering that he saved you this way in a covenant. He's, Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. But now you're walking in the abundant life. Now you're knowing the blessings and you're rejoicing so you can remember and you can rejoice. That's what that's speaking of. And then the third feast that comes out of the big three says this, verse 13, you shall observe the feast of tabernacle Seven days when you've gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine press, and you shall rejoice in your feast. And you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, all who are within your gates. Man, it's, it's the whole neighborhood. 
Seven days you shall keep a sacred feast of the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and all the work of your hand. So you shall surely rejoice three times a year. All your mail shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's this one. That's the Feast of Tabernacles when they lived in a tent for a week. Uh, excuse me, Feast of Unleavened Bread is Passover, and then the Feast of Weeks is the Pentecost, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the seven days in the tent. So Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacle, about six months later. So the two are 50 days apart, but then the other one's like six months later. And it says, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Verse 17, every man shall give as he's able, according to the blessings of the Lord your God, which he has given you. So now this third one, this doesn't say remember. So you have, so you have remember and rejoice. And then now you just have rejoice. And this is interesting to me, this little teeny detail, because the Feast of Tabernacles speaks of the reign of Christ. The Feast of Tabernacles speaks of the kingdom when Christ is enthroned. See, the Feast of Tabernacle looks ahead to a different time. Passover takes us back. Pentecost is in the moment, but Tabernacle is the future. It's like Jesus with communion when he had Passover with the apostles. He he said, you know, we're told in the New Testament harmony of communion that he said, do this in remembrance of me because he's our Passover. Then we're told when we have communion, we're in the moment. We examine ourselves if we need to confess sin. We give thanks and all that. But then when he was leaving with his apostles, going through the vineyards toward the Kidron Valley, he said, we'll not drink this cup again until it's new in my father's kingdom. So there's a future element when we have communion. It speaks of the kingdom. There's a future to it. It's not about what was done in the past or even the rejoicing of the moment. It's about the future of full glory. Like Revelation, there's no more tears and no more sorrow. Tabernacles like that. So I like how these feasts stagger this way. Remember, rejoice, and remember together. But then it's just glory. It's just glory. There's no more tears. There's no more sorrow. Whatever comes in eternity, it can't be described to us. It's received and believed by faith. And it is glory upon glory upon glory with no tears and no sorrows, no evil, no injustice, nothing. New heaven, new earth. And that is our future. That is the destiny of the church. So praise God, this really, these things speak of this. These are here as types and, and word pictures. Now, he goes on to say this. It goes on to say in verse 18, you shall appoint judges and So really, just summarizing his feast, we get, to part, we, get to, we get this element with communion. And we just get it in our life in general. Verse 18, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes. They shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not plant for yourself any tree as a wooden image near the altar which you build for yourself to the Lord your God. You shall not set up sacred pillars which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or a sheep which has any blemish or defect for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. So verse 1 of 17 is kind of in this little bit of cluster. It's going to shift gears. But appoint judges and officials that are good. Just judgments. Not pervert justice. No partiality. Don't take a bribe. Twisting the words of the righteous. That's not us. Obviously, there's a lot of corruption in human governments. There's a lot of corruption in our human government. Governments. 
There's corruption. I don't need to know in eternity, and I really don't even want to know in time, but you wonder how so many people have just been so two-faced in what they say and how they govern and how they judge. You wonder how the will of the people can be the majority vote and be overthrown by three judges at a court somewhere else in California. How can they do that? Like, how can you have a proposition where the majority of people say, this is how we want it, and they reject it, just do what they want anyways? Like, how does that work? And how do people who run for political positions a certain way get elected and turn against those ways, and they don't stand up against the evil that's in the land, and they don't confront it? How does that happen? There can only be a couple possibilities. They've got dirt on them, or they're paying them. But I don't know, and I don't care. I care in the sense of what the future holds for our children, our children's children. But they got our children's children, their faith in Jesus Christ and their fruitful life is not based upon good kings or bad queens. Their fruit for eternity with Jesus Christ is based upon their own obedience and their hearts being set apart to the Lord and fulfilling his calling on their life. He's not surprised that they were born in 2021. He's not going to be surprised what they face in 2041, 2061, or 2081 when they're 60. He knows what's in their future and determine their times and seasons. Like he says to the Apostle Paul, that he's predetermined our boundaries and where we live and what we do. And in, in him we move and live and have our being. God knows that. Psalm 139, the days were fashioned for us when as yet there was none of them. And they're written in his book, in the volume of his book. His thoughts are more for us than the sands of the sea. And what are those thoughts for my grandkids? Jeremiah 29, to give them a future and a hope. Not thoughts of evil, but a future and a hope. And that future hope comes from the throne room of God, not the White House or the UN or any other place of government. God is good. So we can't, make just judge, we can't make judges be just. We can pray for those. But in the end, we can be just. We can be good. We can make good decisions. When your kids have a dispute, make a good just decision between their dispute. When your neighbors have a dispute, like we, 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 can, be, we can be the best we can. Like just because we could be surrounded by injustice, and let's say you were in Israel with all those unjust kings and evil judges and people like Jezebel, who tells her husband, just take Naboth's vineyard. Just kill him and take it. You know, you're the king. No one tells you you can't do that. What if you are surrounded by people like that? Naboth's vineyard is just one of those stories that just doesn't set well with me. Because he said, it's mine. God gave it to me. And they took it from him. And they killed him to take it from him. That story does not set well with me. might set well better when I'm 80 than 60. But at 60, that story does not set well with me. But in the end, God allowed that. And Jezebel was ripped to pieces by the dogs, as the prophet said. And I suppose that Naboth has a good fruit for all eternity and has a much better vineyard in the kingdom than he ever had on earth. You just hate to see injustice and that kind of evil and that kind of perversion of justice seem to get away with it. And even when you see Jezebel ripped to pieces by the dogs... You still don't see Naboth back in his vineyard at 55 and join his grandkids. That's, what, that's why I don't like that story. But in the end, the Lord knows, right? We shouldn't lament that we didn't have the 75 years to watch the grandkids in our vineyard. We should be grateful for the 55 years we had and that we die with our integrity when we refuse to give up that which God gave to us and belonged to us. So the Lord be with us and help us to be just people. 
just true to our word, to be women of integrity, men of integrity, and just do what's right. And for all that's what's wrong, every time we do something that's right, makes the world a better place.